If you turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Mark, the book of Mark, we will be looking at the last chapter, Mark chapter 16, and we will be looking at verses 1 through 8. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. The importance of the empty tomb, the importance of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is what we will be looking at this morning. The resurrection account after Jesus has suffered and been crucified, after he has been given, after he's given up his life on the cross for our sins, after he's been buried, this is what occurs. Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. The scriptures read, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. If you have lived in Seattle for a while, or from Seattle, you are probably a Seattle Seahawks fan. And if you have been following the Seahawks for a number of years, you, in your mind's eye, probably remember some of the greatest plays and the greatest games that have been played by the Seahawks over the years. And in your mind's eye, you probably remember one of them. It was about six years ago, five to six years ago, in the 2014-2015 season-ending game, or I should say season preseason postseason game of the NFC Championship. It was the game against the Green Bay Packers. It was a torturous first three and a half quarters in which the Seahawks really were dominated. They played terribly, and it was a terrible game to watch. It was really disheartening. It was downright miserable watching them struggle all the way up until the last four minutes. In fact, I remember there were people who were already leaving, giving up. They were leaving CenturyLink Field early because, well, the game to them was over. We were down 19-7. And I know that some people who didn't watch the end of the game course, they thought it was over. They wanted to just leave. It was such a disheartening game. But as it turns out, that very last four minutes of the game plus overtime was probably one of the greatest games that the Seahawks had ever played in football history, according to Sports Talk Radio. It seemed as if everything that was unlikely happening happened. 
from a fake field goal touchdown to a second touchdown to recovering an onside kick, you probably remember that play, to another touchdown with a toss-up two-point conversion. It went into overtime where we won the coin toss and then a pass for the game-winning touchdown. It was from depression to elation. It was so exciting. People went out of their homes and into the streets, yelling outside on the streets because they were just thrilled from hopelessness to the thrill of victory. There is nothing like a come-from-behind victory when everything seemed lost and there was extreme hope because there was victory in sight and you just rode this emotional roller coaster ride throughout that game. And it happens in many sports games in which you have a come-from-behind victory in which the fans had given up and it was totally a despairing time. Well, it was something like that, perhaps, just a smidgen like that. You might be able to relate. You can imagine in a very limited way the discouragement, the disillusionment, the dismay of the disciples and others who had followed Jesus for these three years, all of their hopes and dreams who had been pinned on the Lord Jesus. Jesus was to them their winning ticket. He was the one who was going to overthrow Rome in their mind's eye. He was the one who was going to establish an earthly kingdom. The disciples would become perhaps vice regents. They would have influence and power. They would be able to have Rome off of their back. They would be able to fulfill what they dreamed would happen, that they would have their own kingdom that was led by their Messiah, the Lord Jesus. All of that, within seven days, disappeared, crumbled. Their dreams had disappeared, had been nailed to a cross following the suffering and shame that had preceded that. Jesus had died. Didn't matter at whose hands, he was gone. They had no thought that Jesus would arise from the dead. The disciples had scattered. In fact, it wasn't the family who came to get the body. It wasn't the disciples who came to get the body. It was Joseph of Arimathea, ranking member in the Sanhedrin, along later on with Nicodemus as well. They took his body. They wrapped the body in linens with spices to suppress any of the smell. And... They, of course, weren't thinking that Jesus would arise from the dead either. That's why they put all those spices on there. They prepared his body for burial. Everyone who loved Jesus, this to them, it was over. There was to them no hope. That was a settled issue in their mind's eye. And that is where we come in this particular passage. Because Mark chooses to profile once again a group of godly, faithful women who love Jesus, and we see as they come to the tomb their anticipation of what they expected. We see their amazement at what had happened, and we see their anxiety and their trembling after the message that they are to give to others. And then lastly, we'll look at a number of practical applications, a number of practical applications of what the resurrection means to us today and how it is so very relevant for you and I. First of all, we then look at the anticipation. What did they expect, this group of women, in their love for Jesus when they came to the empty tomb? It says in verse 1, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. 
Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had arisen, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Now the Sabbath, the way the Jews counted the days was from 6 p.m. one day to 6 p.m. the next day. Unlike us, we count it from midnight one day to midnight the next day. So they come. It is very early in the morning. This is Sunday morning. It's already Sunday. Verse 2 says it's very early before or when the sun had arisen. And the text here tells us that Mary Magdalene was coming in the morning with the other women and there were a group of them. Luke 24.10 tells us that there were other women as well. And there were a number of them that had come. And what did they do? They were bringing spices. They were bringing spices in order to anoint the body of Jesus to mitigate the smell that would be coming from a decaying body. And their full expectation, their full expectation was that they would somehow perhaps find someone to roll away this heavy stone so that they could put spices on a body that was dead. And if you might notice, even though the disciples are often in the foreground, there is always this group of women, always a group of faithful women who followed Jesus in the background. There was always in the life of Christ a group of faithful women who ministered to him, who demonstrated their love and sacrifice to the Lord Jesus. And Mark highlights that. He highlighted it previously in the previous passage as well. Because when Christianity came about, Christianity uh, brought greater rise to the role of women compared to the other religions around them. And here Mary Magdalene had watched had followed Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus along with another Mary. They were there opposite the grave as he was being buried. They very well knew where he was going to be buried. And they remained afterwards that night in Sabbath when he was buried in grief. And now it's Sunday morning and they are coming. They didn't know. They didn't know that Rome had posted a guard there. They didn't know that uh, there was a Roman seal there to prevent it from being opened. Perhaps they were thinking that somebody, maybe the soldiers might even, or not the soldiers, but somebody might roll away the stone. They didn't know who was going to be there, if anybody at all. But they did not anticipate that Jesus would be alive. That's why they brought the spices. Their anticipation was that Jesus was still in the grave, that he was still dead. And they came, and this is what they found to their amazement. Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. Now, what's fascinating to note, when you, take the, when you take the backdrop of all four Gospels, you'll find in Matthew's account, Matthew tells us in 28 verse 2, there was a severe earthquake that had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. They, perhaps, I don't know, felt the earthquake, maybe they didn't, don't quite know, but the entire four Gospels, there's no evidence that the stone was rolled away so that Jesus could exit out of the tomb. The stone was rolled away so that those who were alive could see that the tomb was empty. The stone was rolled away and they could see that Jesus was not there. They knew where the tomb was because they had followed Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus on the Friday before, one thing that didn't happen was, I'll tell you, 
what one academic liberal scholar named Kersop Lake has argued, which was that the women somehow went to the wrong tomb. They very well knew which tomb it was. They didn't go to the wrong tomb. If they had gone to the wrong tomb in order to prove that the women were wrong and the disciples were wrong, all that Rome had to do was produce a body from the right tomb because the soldiers would have still been there if, it were the right, if they were the wrong tomb. But John 20, verses 1 and 2, tells us the scene of what happens. Because there's this group of women who are coming. There's an earthquake that happens. An angel rolls away the stone. And John 21 and 2 tells us that Mary Magdalene, she arrives at the tomb first. She arrives at the tomb first, it says, while it was still dark, and saw the stone had already been rolled away. So she peeks in, and she sees it is empty, and she runs, and she tells Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John. And then the other women come. The rest of the women come. And that's where the picture and the story is filled in. And they look into this tomb, and it is empty, and they are amazed. That is the word that is used there. That word for amazed means terrified. It means disbelief, shocked. They are stunned as they look into the tomb. Mary Magdalene had already seen the tomb was empty. She didn't hang around to have any discussion. She just ran off to tell Peter and John. They come, and with gaping mouths, the rest of them look into the empty tomb, and this is what the angel says. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. This here in this text is the very first declaration of the gospel after the resurrection. The good news is that Jesus is alive. Jesus has arisen from the dead. James Edwards writes, a commentator, the one whom the angel invites them to know is the one whom they have known. The announcement of the angel is literally the gospel, good news, and the place which the gospel is first preached is the empty tomb that both received and gave up the crucified one. The empty tomb was there, and the angel tells them to tell others, Jesus has risen from the dead. Their anticipation was that there would be a dead body there for them to put spices in. Their amazement of the empty tomb was that of a jaw-dropping shock and that Jesus had arisen. And thirdly, we look at their anxiety and trembling because they were given a message. But go, the angel says, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, Mary Magdalene, as I mentioned, had already run off. Here they were. They were given this commission to tell others that Jesus was alive from the dead. It was the message of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. This is the unique message of Christianity. The late Pinchas Lapid, an Orthodox Jew and Israeli historian, said this, quote, Without the experience of the resurrection, the crucifixion of Jesus would most likely have remained without consequence and forgotten, just as were the innumerable crucifixions of pious Jews which the Romans carried out before Jesus, during the lifetime of Jesus, 
and up until the destruction of Jesus in the year 70. Thus, the Christian faith stands and falls not with Golgotha, the infamous place of the skull, where thousands of Jesus' brothers were murdered cruelly by Roman mercenaries, but with the experience of, quote, on the third day after the crucifixion, an experience which was able to diffuse, to refute, and even to make meaningful this death on the cross for the community of the disciples. The resurrection, in other words, was the resounding theme of the early church. The resurrection was set apart Christianity and the death of Jesus from every other religious individual who would ever die because he would be the one and the only one who arise from the dead just as he himself has said. The first sermon that was ever preached was about the resurrection and it was the resounding theme of all apostolic preaching in the book of Acts and in the early church. Peter preached it in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 10. In his messages when he preached, the theme was the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, that Jesus was alive. Stephen preached it in Acts chapter 7. It was Philip's message in Acts chapter 8 on the resurrection. And Paul also gave that message of the resurrection in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 28. He wrote to the Romans, Paul did, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. When he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians, he said he arose again the third day according to the scriptures. In 2 Corinthians, he was raised up, and he being raised up shall raise us up also. And in Philippians, when he writes to the Philippian church, in chapter 3, verse 10, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The resurrection was the core of the gospel message and the preaching of the apostles after the Jesus had come to life. And after they discovered the empty tomb, it was central message of apostolic preaching. The centrality of the resurrection of Jesus and the preaching of the apostles is just simply undeniable. And with the exception of a few heresies within the history of the church, the resurrection of Jesus had never been challenged within the church until our modern day of skepticism and humanism in which people have begun to cast doubt upon the resurrection. But God, what did God do? God provided the evidence not only of the empty tomb, but of hundreds of witnesses, hundreds of witnesses of various people at various times. The eyewitnesses of so many people would have been difficult to fabricate or to attribute to a hallucination. What those eyewitnesses do is substantiate the evidence that has been given to us in the claims of Jesus, the claims of Jesus that he would arise from the dead. So we see these women who had come. They had expected a dead body in which they would put spices on there. They were amazed because the tomb was empty and they were given a message to tell others that Jesus had arisen from the dead. So what difference does this make to you and I today? What difference does the resurrection make to you and I today? Let me give you a number of very practical things. Number one, the difference that it makes for Christians is that the resurrection of Jesus is, first of all, essential in your evangelism. It is essential 
in your gospel presentation. Romans 10 verse 9 tells us that a person must, they must believe in the resurrection in order to be a Christian. It reads that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There is salvation in no one else but the resurrected Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Bible tells us that he suffered, he died, and he was raised from the dead. That is a part of the gospel message. And for us, we need to include that whenever we share about the good news, because that is the good news. So, the resurrection of Jesus is essential to the gospel message and to our evangelism. Number two, the resurrection answers people who have doubts. The resurrection is an answer to people who have doubts. You know, there are seven Greek words that are translated doubt, such as unbelief, uncertainty, despair, etc. People who are not Christians have doubts about their own unbelief sometimes. Just as C.S. Lewis, when C.S. Lewis said, when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable, unquote. Resurrection answers people who have doubts. When Jesus was asked by the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 16, he was asked by the scribes and Pharisees for a sign. What was the sign that Jesus gave? Because the Jews were all about having these big signs. You know, if you could produce a big sign, well, you were somebody who had something to say. Jesus said that the only sign they would get would be the sign of his resurrection. When Jesus disrupted the temple by overturning the, temp, uh, the, the change, money changers' tables, when he went in the temple in John chapter 2, they asked him, well, what authority, what authority do you have to come in here and do all of these things? And he said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. His answer was the resurrection. When Thomas doubted in John chapter 20, after he had risen from the dead, Jesus, what did he do? He appeared to him in his resurrected body and told him to see and touch. In fact, even in today's day, you can think of one well-known apologist named Josh McDowell and his testimony who was an aspiring attorney. He aspired to go about and disprove the resurrection. God used his research to help overcome his doubt, and God opened the eyes of his heart, drew him to himself, and he was saved. The answer to doubters is the message of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. It is a key to your sharing of the gospel. It is a key to answer people's doubts. Thirdly, the resurrection is key to handling grief. It is key to handling grief. When someone passes away, they go home to be with the Lord. We often read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13 through 18. And it was just this morning, a few hours ago, that I had learned that uh, one of the individuals that I saw when I was ill a number of years ago had just passed away yesterday. They had just passed away, I think, because of cancer. They had battled cancer for three years and just discovered this morning and this is the passage that I posted for them on Facebook, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, 
about those who are asleep. Asleep is a euphemism for those who have died. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. It is because of the resurrection that someday we will have life and life everlasting as Christians. And it is the source of comfort. So the key of the resurrection is very practical in handling grief, knowing that there is hope for those who have died in Christ. It is key to our evangelistic sharing. It is key to overcoming doubts. It is key to comforting those who have lost loved ones in the Lord. Fourthly, it is key to a dramatically changed life. The resurrection is key to a dramatically changed life. After the resurrection, the New Testament records many, many lives that were dramatically changed. From the Apostle Peter to the Apostle Paul to James, all of the disciples, in fact, all of them were willing to die because of what they had witnessed, what they had seen. Now, some people will say, look, that, that, that's not a very good reason because there's lots of people that die for their religious beliefs, even though those beliefs may have been false. After all, we can think of all sorts of people who die as martyrs for their own belief system. Well, that is true. But the disciples, the difference is that these disciples were the first-hand witnesses of the resurrection. People that we see today that die are not first-hand witnesses to their religious beliefs. The disciples were the first-hand witnesses to the resurrection. And few, if anyone, would be willing to die if it were a lie as a first-hand witness because they would have very well known if it were not true. But they knew it was true because they were witnesses of the risen Savior. And the vast majority of the disciples, they died as martyrs for the faith. The very fact that nearly all of them were killed for their faith testifies to the truthfulness of their claim. Not only did they have changed lives, but millions upon millions of people have dramatically changed lives because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, early on in his career, there was a man named A.N. Wilson who was a brilliant philosopher, and some thought that he would become the next C.S. Lewis. And he wrote a piece called Religion of Hatred about himself coming to Christ. And he writes this, quote, My belief has come about in large measure because of the lives and examples of people I have known. Not the famous, nor the saints, but friends and relations who have lived and faced death in the light of the resurrection story. Or 
in the quiet acceptance that they have a future after they die. Sadly, the secularists have all but accepted that only stupid people actually believe in Christianity and that the few intelligent people left in churches are there only for the music or believe it all is some symbolic or contorted way which, when examined, turns out not to be belief at all. As a matter of fact, I am sure the opposite is the case and that materialist atheism is not merely an arid creed but totally irrational. Materialist atheism says, we are just a collection of chemicals. It has no answer whatsoever to the question of how we should be capable of love or heroism or poetry or if we are simply animated pieces of meat. The resurrection which proclaims that matter and spirit are mysteriously conjoined is the ultimate key to who we are. It confronts us with an extraordinarily haunting story. J.S. Bach believed the story and set it to music. Most of the greatest writers and thinkers of the past 1,500 years have believed it. But an even stronger argument is the way that Christian faith transforms individual lives, the lives of the men and women with whom you mingle on a daily basis, the man, woman, or child next to you in church tomorrow morning, unquote. It is the resurrection and the power of the resurrection that transforms hearts and minds of people who turn to Christ in repentance and faith. Our Savior, the Lord Jesus, died and rose again. So the resurrection is very practical and that is the key to your evangelistic sharing. It is the key to answering people who have doubts. It is the key to bringing comfort when those loved ones in Christ die. It is the key to a dramatically changed life. Fifthly, it is the key to being able to endure suffering for Christ. It is the key to being able to endure suffering for Christ. Paul's suffering for the sake of the gospel is expounded in 2 Corinthians 4, 7-18. through 2 Corinthians 4, 7-18, through he has this long passage in which he speaks of this, this, this treasure, this treasure of the gospel in earthen vessels being ourselves. We are just merely earthen vessels, and we're, we're, we're blessed to have the gospel. And he says in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, verse 8, we're afflicted in every way, not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And then he says in verse 11, for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. In other words, his life was always on the line for the sake of the gospel. But why is he putting up with all of this hardship and suffering? It is because of the resurrection. 2 Corinthians 4.14 Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. The key to living for Christ and suffering for the sake of being a Christian is all because in our mind's eye, someday we will be resurrected from the dead and we will be presented with Jesus. The resurrection is the key to our evangelism, to our overcoming doubts, to 
comfort when somebody who has died in Christ has hope to a dramatically changed life to enduring suffering when we suffer for the sake of Jesus. And sixthly, it is the key to power, spiritual power to live the Christian life. Spiritual power to live the Christian life. Paul writes about this when he writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now, Paul was a very heady guy. I mean, he was a student of a student under Gamaliel. He very well knew a lot of knowledge, but he knew there was no power in the law. He knew there was no power in the flesh, but there was spiritual power in Jesus Christ and his resurrection. There was power to live in a way that we are to live, to live a holy and a righteous and a good life that pleases God, and he pursued He continued to pursue that experiential knowledge, not just head knowledge, but experiential knowledge of Christ. It's one thing to have the intellect to say, oh yes, I understand and I believe these facts, but the spiritual power is that which experienced in the Christian as they are filled by the Spirit of God, that power to live the Christian life because Jesus' resurrection itself is the greatest display of that power. And Paul found that even as he suffered for God's glory and he knew what it was to suffer, he was able to taste what it was that Jesus went through, even in the smallest sense, to suffer for the sake of the glory of God. Suffering drives us to God in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead, it says, God gives you and me the ability to overcome sin, to live in a godly manner, all because of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, from which we come to Christ and we are saved and we have the power of God to live in a way that pleases God. The late pastor John Stott writes, quote, I'm afraid we are always in danger of trivializing the Christian good news but also always in danger of minimizing what God, by his resurrection power, is able to do in ordinary human beings like you and me. We sometimes, he writes, talk of becoming a Christian as if it were no more than just turning over a new leaf or maybe becoming a little religious or making a few superficial changes to our usual pattern of life. But when you scratch the surface... We are the same old pagans underneath. No real change has taken place. Friend, I want to assure you that becoming and being a Christian according to the New Testament is something far more radical. And radical is the right word because it means going to the very roots of our human being and human personality. Becoming a Christian is nothing less than a resurrection from spiritual death to the beginning of an entirely new life in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In a word, the same God of supernatural power who raised Jesus from physical death and raised us from spiritual death and make us alive and alert to spiritual things. 
we can know that God can raise us from that death because he raised Christ. He can change us because he changed Christ, raising him from the dead. That resurrection power to live the Christian life for those who are genuinely saved comes about because God raised Christ from the dead. So the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is not just some sort of isolated event that happened 2,000 years ago. And it is not just an intellectual exercise of belief. It is key to the message of the gospel as the apostles preach that message over and over again. It is the message and the proof to those who doubt. It is the key to comforting Christians when our loved ones pass away in the Lord because when they pass away, they someday will experience that resurrection. It is key to a dramatically changed life. It is key to enduring suffering as we look into the future, that suffering when we suffer for being a Christian. It is key to the power of living a godly life. There is real everyday relevance to the power of Christian living, both now and in eternity as Christians throughout the world who share the hope and the future glory all because of the resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we come before you and realize, Lord, that the resurrection of our Lord and Savior has brought to us the ability, those who have bowed the knee to you in repentance and faith, has brought to us the power to live in a way that is honoring to you, in a way that brings you glory. That is the message of hope that we have. Even as the angel said to these women, he is not here, he is arisen from the dead. Go and tell others. And Father, we pray that that might be our message too, that you would not only empower us, but Father, you would impassion our hearts because that is the message that this world needs. In the midst of all of this chaos, Father, the world looks for peace. Father, we have the key to that in the message of the gospel. We pray, God, that we might deliver that faithfully in the opportunities that you afford us. We pray, God, that you would bless us as we do. And we pray, God, that you would be honored and glorified by our lives as we live in a manner that is pleasing to you because of Christ's resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen.